0: Hello and welcome to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, video maker, Oakland native, and funky chicken expert. I'm also a huge fan of history. As you know, I love untold stories, gross facts, hidden secrets, and anything weird, dark, and funky from the past. Today I'm going to share one of my favorite deep cuts with you to celebrate my new song Sad Disco, which just released a little bit ago, and also, to let you know that my album, Rising, is coming out on May 20th. But, let's get into some history. You ready to jump in? It's 365 with MXM 2 New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, Know it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's 365. When you think of disco, what images come to mind? Big hair, shiny decor, John Travolta maxing out the dance floor and the Bee Gees pumping through a sound system—just a few things we tend to associate with the 1970s dance craze. But disco is more than just Saturday Night Fever and glittering jumpsuits. It's an entire subculture, one embraced largely by LGBTQ and POC communities in its early days. And even though we think of disco as a retro genre, it's actually influenced so much music since the first disco hits hit the dance waves. But let's reverse. The origins of disco can be traced back to the 1940s, when the Nazis occupied France and outlawed most art, music, and other forms of cultural pleasure. Unwilling to give up band music like jazz, the French opened up secret underground nightclubs. Since jazz bands had been disbanded, they played music on records instead of live. The clubs were extra-inclusive as a way to spite the Nazis, opening their doors to the gay community and to black people. The most famous of these underground clubs was called the Discothèque, which is French for Library of Phonograph Records. The name caught on, and other underground clubs like it were also known as discothèques. Discotheques outlived the Nazis. In the 1950s, you could find nightclubs like Whisky-a-Go-Go Go in Paris and the Scotch Club in West Germany pumping out recorded music from turntables. In the United States, you could find dance clubs like the American iteration of Whisky-a-Go-Go Go in Los Angeles and the Peppermint Lounge in New York. These clubs played sexy music like The Twist. Okay, it was sexy then. And other dance hits as well. At least, that's what they played pre-disco. The 1960s was a big time for music. Rock, folk, and psychedelic genres became huge during the anti-war and drug-fueled decade, with festivals like Woodstock and the Monterey pop Festival showcasing big acts like Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Bob Dylan, and The Grateful Dead. But when the 1970s rolled around, some music fans were ready for a new sound, preferably one with a dancey beat, which wasn't popular anymore at the time. And it wasn't just the actual sound of the 1960s people were trying to escape. The decade was full of social and racial unrest. The civil rights movement of the 1960s invigorated Black Americans and also had them seeking safe spaces for creative expression. The gay rights movement, sparked in large part by the June 1969 uprising at New York City's Stonewall Inn, was also in full swing in the 1970s. And LGBTQ Americans were seeking a safe space for themselves, too. Dance clubs provided that space, and dance music, chiefly, what would soon become disco music, was the backdrop. The music itself had its roots in what was called psychedelic soul. Think Jimi Hendrix, for instance, as well as Sly and The Family Stone, and even The Temptations. The music had a beat, but was also subversive and sexy. As music progressed in the early 1970s, artists leaned on heavy percussion and bass lines, lush string orchestra arrangements, repetitive vocals, and sliding hi-hat rhythms. This would soon be recognizable sounds of disco. The disco scene itself was allegedly birthed in New York City on February 14th, 1970. A New York DJ named David Mancuso threw a Valentine's Day party in his Manhattan home. The party was mostly attended by members of the LGBTQ community, who were being harassed by police gay bars and event spaces, and were looking for a safe place to hang out. It was such a popular event that DJ Mancuso started throwing these invite-only parties more regularly and his home eventually came to be known as The Loft, an underground discotheque. Other spaces like The Loft started springing up in New York and in Philadelphia. These spaces were racially and sexually inclusive, and invited attendees to dance, party, and celebrate life with democratic abandon. The style, glitter, big hair, flashing lights, fit the larger-than-life celebratory vibe. Rolling Stone writer Vin Saletti who wrote the first feature on Disco, described the scene as like going to a party completely mixed racially and sexually where there wasn't any sense of someone being more important than anyone else. Eventually, Disco made it to the mainstream. Clubs like Studio 54 in New York, Artemis in Philadelphia, and Studio One in Los Angeles were popular with celebrities and non-celebrities alike. Disco music played on the airwaves with bands like Sweden's ABBA, the Bee Gees, and KC and the Sunshine Band releasing major hits. Motown, the predominantly Black music scene out of Detroit, made a pivot towards disco, with superstars like Diana Ross releasing hot disco tracks. John Travolta starred in the iconic 1977 film Saturday Night Fever, which showcased disco and the aforementioned Bee Gees. Though disco was a hit, particularly with LGBTQ, Black, Hispanic, and Italian-Americans, the craze had its detractors. Some people thought disco was goofy or uncool, Worse, much of the anti-disco sentiment was rooted in racism and homophobia. In 1978, a rock and roll DJ named Steve Dahl lost his job at WDAI Chicago when the radio station switched formats from rock to disco. A few months later, Dahl was hired to DJ a different station where he quote-unquote got back at WDIA by mocking disco and making explosion sounds while playing disco records on air. In 1979, the Chicago White Sox were looking for a way to drum attendance to their games. The managers decided to hold a disco demolition night at their stadium at a game against the Detroit Tigers on July 12th of that year. They invited Dahl to host and told attendees that for 98 cents and a disco record, they could get a ticket to the game. About 48,000 people showed up for disco demolition night, thousands more than the regular attendance of a White Sox game. The crowd shouted, "'Disco sucks!' Dahl showed up in military gear and essentially declared war against disco. Then, he literally blew up a massive box of disco records collected from the attendees. From there, the night descended into riots and chaos. Attendees went wild, burning banners and smashing records. The White Sox had to forfeit the game. And though the event was positioned as a battle between rock and roll and dance music, disco fans and music makers saw a massive crowd of mostly white men waging war against a safe haven for queer folks and people of color. Disco had been othered. Disco Demolition Night is often referred to as the day disco died. Disco's popularity started to die out by 1980, and soon pop music by the likes of Madonna and Michael Jackson would replace it on the dance floor. But disco's influence, the heavy bass beats, the repeated vocals can be heard in the dance music we listen to today. Disco will never really die. Speaking of, I mentioned I have a song out called Sad Disco, and it is very much inspired by the music that I grew up listening to, which was mostly ABBA. When I was six years old, I owned about like five different CDs, and I can name two of them pretty clearly. Mamma Mia on CD and Hairspray, the musical. I remember being the six-year-old version of myself dancing around with a boa my grandma had given me in my room to Dancing Queen by ABBA. And I think ever since then, there are few records that make me feel the way that ABBA songs do. And I'm still now 21, dancing in my room, listening to Dancing Queen. I'm not (laughs) sweet, young, and 17 anymore, but I am someone who's still thoroughly enjoys a good ABBA song, and when I was making my song, Sad Disco, it was very much inspired by the way that that song makes me feel, by the way disco music makes me feel. And even looking at other artists like Dua Lipa with her record, Future Nostalgia, quite clearly disco has a huge influence on modern-day music. On my upcoming album, Rising, disco has played a major role in kind of creating and understanding what sort of vibe I want to convey through the next chapter of my music. A lot of these songs that I'm going to share with you on May 20th are rooted in the feelings that I experienced when I was six and I first discovered music that made me feel excited and happy and like I belonged. Disco is a genre that has served as a place for people throughout history to find themselves and express themselves freely and authentically. And it has done the exact same for me in this next chapter with a song like Sad Disco and with an album like Rising. So I'm so excited to share it with you on May 20th. I'm going to keep drilling that into your heads. That way you don't forget. Because although Harry Styles is releasing an album the same day as me, I am releasing an album too. And I want to celebrate that. I will be listening to Mr. Harry Styles's record, though, on that day. <laughs> And Sad Disco is like one of the first songs that I get to share with you besides Mona Lisa. So Mona Lisa and Sad Disco are the two songs that are out now for you to listen to to kind of get you prepped and ready for this next chapter of MXM Tune, which was heavily inspired by Disco. Even though we've talked about the day Disco died, it is not dead. It is alive and well, and it is fueling my music and many other music from artists as well it's 365 with mxm tune new facts every day so don't leave too soon i'm gonna teach you stuff no it won't be tough gonna go a year till you've had enough it's